Today on Lifelong Learning, we are discussing the clinician's role in quality improvement, or QI. What are the approaches to QI? What's the role of data in QI? And much more. Welcome to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and with me today is Dr. Arif Kamal, Director of Quality and Outcomes at Duke Cancer Institute. Welcome, Arif. We're glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with kind of a broad question here on what is the clinician's role in quality improvement or QI? Historically, clinicians have thought that quality improvement in healthcare is the responsibility and ultimately the activities done by others, um, leaders and folks in finance and accounting and, and other areas within the healthcare system. And ultimately, when you realize at the end of the day, quality improvement is about improving the experience for patients and their caregivers with serious illness or acute illness. And at the end of that, and at the center of the improvement of that really is the clinician. Oftentimes, they take roles as sponsors of projects, meaning that they oversee projects. And other times, they're the content experts. They're the ones who understand where the limitations are and how current healthcare delivery works and how it could potentially get better. I think increasingly over time, clinicians will find that as challenges get more challenging, that really the role of the clinician will be increased and that ultimately they'll work in bigger teams to work on harder problems together. So it sounds like there's a couple of different approaches or maybe even more than a couple, but some basic approaches in here. Can you touch on that for us? You know, I I think the greatest um, hesitancy and anxiety that clinicians have in doing any sort of quality improvement project is when they think that any focus of a project is really around a question that I would call audit, meaning that an external party, a payer, a regulator, an accreditor, or outside stakeholders are really asking a tough question, which is how is your practice or organization doing? In that setting, you want to very clearly be careful about what data you report because ultimately, if you look bad, that can affect your bottom line in several different ways. But we know that most quality improvement activities are actually not within the spectrum of audit, but they're really under the role of improvement, which means a couple things. One, you expect that you're not where you want to be, and that's okay. Two, that because you expect to not be where you want to be, it's a safe space, meaning that nobody will be on your case, that criticism will be very constructive, and you'll expect it to come across. And three, that means that you have improvement to go in the right direction or to go upwards. And once we're able to help clinicians understand that a specific project is about improvement and not about audit, everybody relaxes, takes a deep breath, and says, okay, I'm ready to get started. I imagine the audit side then does have a little bit of defensiveness about it, but have you seen that shifting in the last year, two, three years? I think so. I think it's becoming more... Uh, clear now that people understand the changes in how reimbursement occurs and how accreditation is occurring with the Affordable Care Act and other things, that really, as people understand that better, they're figuring out, okay, here are the minimum requirements of data that we need to report because people are asking us to report them. And we're going to look at those very carefully, and we're going to want to report them in a way that is most advantageous for our group. But That ultimately becomes the things you have to do, but then there's the things you want to do and the things that are really important and fun to do, and that ends up being quality improvement. And as people start doing a lot more health services design, research, and implementation and evaluation, they start realizing we can be doing healthcare in a better way, and clinicians ultimately want to be at the forefront of that, and that's that's where their role in quality improvement becomes most important. I like that. I, I want to hear about those fun projects in a second, but tell us first, before we get to the project specifically at Duke Cancer Institute, talk a little bit about data and the impact of data, the sources of data, the role of data. Data is one of those things that makes the quality improvement machine hum. Um, at the end of the day, what makes 
quality improvement meaningful as being able to quantitatively or qualitatively use data to show that you made an impact and you're able to measure that impact and that impact then can uh, link to an outcome downstream that's of importance that improves patient or caregiver outcomes, for example. And what we're learning now is that the data required for a quality improvement project or initiative can come from a lot of different places that we hadn't previously thought of. So for example, several different hospitals now are reporting when they look at their patient satisfaction data that the most common criticism or the most common feedback they're receiving has nothing to do with the quality of healthcare they're delivering. It's actually the cleanliness of the bathrooms in the hospital. So at that point, you start to think, well, gosh, now we're looking at data that looks at janitorial services and housekeeping services and how we're staffing those services and how often they're doing what they need to do. That's data that had not historically been thought of as to be used for a quality improvement project. But at the end of the day, those are the creative sources of data that we need to use for all the different projects we're looking at. And in addition, we know that things like rapid learning healthcare, the idea from the Institute of Medicine that really all data is fair game for us to use for improvement, means that data for quality improvement can come from the pathology report. It could come from the labs. It could come from the patient's chart. It could come from financial data. It could come from healthcare utilization data. And frankly, just as I said in this example, it could come from the janitorial service data as well. It's all fair game and, and should be used in creative ways to, to improve the healthcare delivery system. Yeah, it sounds like a real convergence of data coming together on that. So tell us a little bit about what you have seen at Duke Cancer Institute as you brought that QI data in to look at and analyze. So really, we've been working on two big projects. One is called QDACT, the Quality Data Collection Tool. And this was largely inspired by the idea that in certain medical disciplines, there are not coordinated ways to collect data for quality improvement. I'm a breast oncologist. In addition, I'm a palliative care physician. And we know that across the country, there are about 5,000 hospices, all with their own unique data sets, Excel files, for example, that have data on quality that they're holding on to. But ultimately, we realized when we went to compare that data that it's really hard because those data sets are not interoperable, meaning that they ask the data in different ways, that the organization two blocks down the road for them could ask race as African-American, Caucasian, Asian, and Latino. And this group, two blocks down the road from them, could be asking that as African-American, Asian, Caucasian, and put Latino under ethnicity. And once you find out that there's no agreement on something simple and basic as race and ethnicity or how to ask the question, it becomes virtually impossible to compare data on quality downstream from that. So we realized early on that we would need a federated, consolidated, comprehensive way to collect data on quality that everybody um, could agree upon, and we could put that out into the, into the field. So in 2007, we created a consortium called the Carolinas Consortium for Palliative Care, and this was really aimed at having a standardized instrument to measure quality across all academic and community palliative care organizations in the state of North Carolina. We quickly grew and now became the Global Palliative Care Quality Alliance because we've had lots of interested parties from as far away as Australia and across the country want to do this type of data collection together. We built a mobile app or tool that we use an iPad for, and now all these sites across the country and in Australia are collecting the same data elements using the same app on an iPad, and we're able to put all the data together and compare it. And then what we can do is do benchmarking, understand how certain sites are doing well and others may need some improvement, and we start working together as a collaborative to figure out solutions together so that we really raise all the boats in the ocean by raising the level of the ocean. So tell us about the second project you're doing at Duke as well. Our other large project is one very specific to just the Cancer Institute. Many um, may know that the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation has had an initiative called Choosing Wisely, 
which is a national campaign for membership organizations to develop uh, measures to look at services that are of low value or low quality, measures or processes of care that have very little evidence to support them. For example, an MRI scan for a patient with one-week history of back pain is a Choosing Wisely measure put forward by the family physicians. Well, in oncology, we have a Choosing Wisely measure around doing advanced imaging in early breast cancer. That means patients who have early breast cancer that's not thought to have spread Generally, we don't do PET scans, CT scans, or MRI scans in those patients, and that's recommended not only by Choosing Wisely, but by other guideline groups as well. So we wanted to look to see how are we doing at Duke by looking through our data systems to understand, are we actually doing those advanced imaging more than we need to? And when we looked at our data, we found that about 20% of the time we are. Now what's interesting is, is that we did that under quality improvement, not audit, as I mentioned, because we're not obligated to report that data to anybody outside of our institution. We have lots of great meetings inside of Duke to talk about is 20% where we want to be. Do we want to do better than that? Or do we want to be at a higher number? And how does that actually impact outcomes? Are all things and conversations that we've been able to inspire based on doing that internal quality improvement project. Additionally, we've asked other collaborators and, and folks that are interested in similar projects to compare their data with ours so we can start getting a sense of what maybe is the right number to do and how can we all get better uh, towards that number. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and with me today is Dr. Arif Kamal. So tell us about some challenges you might foresee for people trying to take on these quality improvement projects and initiatives. Clinicians are really smart people. But we are not taught how to do quality improvement in medical school. And just now, recently, have we started learning how to do this within residency and fellowship and postgraduate medical education. At the end of the day, it is tempting to think that quality improvement comes natural to clinicians. It's tempting to think that quality improvement comes natural to anybody in any profession. But in fact, it's a learned skill and something that you start out you know, a little rough around the edges and it takes practice and time. And that's okay because that actually becomes your own internal quality improvement project is learning the skills required to do this well. You know, recently I was in a cockpit with a pilot and we were flying and he, he was showing me how, how he flies a plane. And he made a comment that said that clinicians in his experience make some of the worst pilots. And I asked him why. And he said, well, did you notice that before we took off, I went through a checklist of 120 items before I even turned the engine on of the single-engine plane. I said, I, I, I did notice that, and, and if anything, I got a little bit frustrated that we weren't moving a little faster. And he said, yeah. He said, exactly. Clinicians can be a little impatient. And I said, you're right, because we are very results-oriented. We want to get to the end. We want to get to the cure. We want to get to the treatment. He said, yep, but there's a process, and those of us in aviation know you can't skip step one or skip 20 or skip 120. You have to go through every single one of them. And he had been flying for 20,000 hours in his career, which is a number I can't even imagine. And he still does number one through 120 in this plane that he's owned for um, almost 20 years. So what he pointed out to me was that we have to, in medicine, teach ourselves to slow down, to think in terms of discrete steps and in an order and not skip those steps. He also pointed out that in aviation, they use a very standard set of language. For example, when he talks to the control tower, there's no small talk. There's no, how are you guys doing today? This is very discreet language that is very brief. It is to the point, and it uses a vernacular um, that is known throughout the world, and it's a very conserved vernacular. And he said, gosh, wouldn't it be great if medicine did that as well? So I think, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from them. The other thing that I find in, in my experience coaching teams who do quality improvement is that clinicians tend to think of the solution before they have a really good grasp of the problem. 
and it makes us really good at what we do when you're in a trauma situation or when you're trying to save somebody's life with CPR. You're thinking about the outcome, you're processing really quickly, and you make actions and steps very fast because it is required at that time. Quality improvement actually requires you spend a lot of time thinking about the problem. And in working with teams, we've spent upwards of six to nine months making sure that everybody in the room agrees exactly on what the problem is. Because what you realize is if you try to retrofit a predetermined solution to a problem that is not yet defined and clear, your quality improvement initiative will never work. And that's what clinicians are going to have to start learning how to do. And it's, it's challenging. I still struggle at doing that. Folks around me who I admire quite a bit, all of us have to take our time in thinking about the problem long before we think about what the potential solution may be. Excellent. And it's good to hear that. So as we do shift that thinking over time, get your crystal ball out. What do you think it'll look like, say, five years down the road from now? Well, I'd love to see that clinicians have uh, more of a, a role in quality improvement. I'd love to see that they are really seeing the opportunities that are there. For my colleagues who are very interested in, you know, academic work products and building their CV and their resume, et cetera, quality improvement is a wonderful avenue to put together papers and posters and abstracts and to present at meetings and really put out there products of the work that you're working on. And it's increasingly becoming on par and on level with manuscripts that look at more sort of classic types of research. So for those that are interested in career development, it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. I think for those physicians that are interested in leadership and taking the reins of improvement across their health system, quality improvement is an absolute and necessary methodology to understand because at the end of the day, it's a common language between nurses and physicians and phlebotomists and everybody in a healthcare system can speak the language of quality improvement and I'd love to see physicians have a, a greater role in understanding in that. And ultimately, I think physicians and clinicians and everybody who touches a patient in some way will be the drivers of change. I think a lot of the criticisms and, and anxieties with things like the Affordable Care Act is this idea that the locus of control, how healthcare will improve over time, has suddenly become the focus of those outside of medicine. And at the end of the day, it's those of us within medicine, clinicians, leadership, patients and caregivers who are going to be the drivers of this change. And I think the ACA and other changes have been the start to that. I think clinicians and the rest of us are going to take the baton and keep running with it. And that's, that's the vision I'd love to see. And you've mentioned papers, so we'll let our learners and listeners know that you certainly are published and Medline searches on your name, Arif Kamal. That's spelled A-R-I-F-K-A-M-A-L. They'll certainly surface some of your papers and your work, and we appreciate that. And we've run out of time, unfortunately. I wish we could stay longer, but we thank you so much for your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton. If you want to download this segment, you can go to ReachMD.com or download the podcast on your ReachMD mobile app. Thanks for joining us.